Hey, Three Crosses family, AJ here. Welcome back to the podcast. We are in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, and we got a special guest for you today on this episode. So with that, let's go deeper. Well, hey, Three Crosses family, as you guys saw on Sunday, we had a very special speaker join us, and today we have... Pastor Larry Vold to dig into 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. So, Pastor Larry, welcome to the podcast. Oh, man, I'm excited to be here. Thank you, Pastor AJ. Well, I want to jump right into the text here, 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. And like always, we're going to break it down section by section and try to unpack what we got here. So, let me read it for you. If you're on your commute or doing a chore right now, let me read the scriptures over you. Finally, all of you be like-minded be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and humble. So on Sunday, Larry, you brought out these five different adjectives. And one of the things I've loved about the podcast in uh, sitting down with Danny and other guest speakers, we've been talking about this Greco-Roman worldview and trying to get into the shoes of a first century listener hearing First Peter's letters. So you brought out um, some of the great concepts about how the church should act in these five ways. But I'm wondering if first Peter chose these intentionally. I'm wondering what these five adjectives would have meant to a Greco-Roman citizen in the first century. So Mm. could you help us go deeper into these five adjectives by talking about how they stack up against a Greco-Roman backdrop? Yeah, wow, that's a great question. And, you know, that's really our job, right? If we're going to preach, we've got to preach the text, and we have to see the ourselves in the text. And, of course, in the first century where Peter is writing, uh, you know, the interesting thing about it, the Greco-Roman world, really, these are attributes that were uh, pretty much uh, designed or desired by the people of Peter's day, uh, with one exception. Uh, the humility part was uh, in this time and age, not something that was seen as a value. And so we we could talk about that a little bit. But the other four are all like really strong, like family values that the Greco-Roman world apprised. And but the interesting thing about that is, is that for the Christians, uh, this this appeared to the people in the Greco-Roman world as maybe a little bit um, uh, adversarial to them because this belonged to the society. This was a part of the public a view of families. And so now here were these Christians sort of like being called. And so I wonder if Peter, as he wrote this, uh, I wonder if he recognized, I'm sure he did, that this was going to have some resistance among the people of, of, of the day that the, the readers were getting the information. Uh, I'm struck by this transition from the household codes to all of you. Yeah. And uh, would you say that all of you is speaking about the church here? Or yeah. Or some other demographic? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the all of you is the all of you, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, everybody that's going to read this letter. But yeah, the all of you, I think, is clearly uh, not slaves, not wives, but everybody. Everybody that's, you know, and we've done such a beautiful job. I love Pastor Danny and the message these last few weeks. Uh pulling out these different people groups that that uh, Peter is writing to. But clearly, you know, there's a, a power to these adjectives because um, the value, you know, like in, in the world, we we have hostilities. And, and people in the Greco-Roman world that weren't Christians, they had hostile situations too. And yet here we're called to like live with these attributes with each other in the body of Christ. And and yet 
I don't know about you, but I find that there's a lot of people that I talk to in the church that kind of feel like, gee, I, I thought the church would be different. You know, I come from a world where there's a lot of hostility, and sometimes I come into a church and I feel like there's a lot of hostility there too. And, and you know, thank the Lord we don't really have that, I believe, at Three Crosses. And yet there's a lot of people who find themselves kind of beat up in the church. So this is, not, this is for all of us. Um, and yes, for believers, this should be something we should be practicing on a daily basis in our families and with each other in the body of Christ. I wanted to emphasize these five adjectives within the context of the church. And like you said, it can be very difficult for people to feel at home at a church because, of course, we're human. There are hostilities. Um, But I'm struck by some of the cultural differences as we look to um, the ancient world and our modern Western culture. Um, I pulled a a quote from a commentary from Karen Jobes that me and Pastor Danny have been following throughout the series. And it says, modern Western concepts of individualism. That's a word we throw around a lot in the modern West, especially in the Bay Area. Individualism tends to trump commitment to community. Where commitment is found, it's often evaluated in terms of individual needs. An individual whose needs are no longer met by a community terminates the commitment and seeks a new, more obliging group. And I guess this quote draws out this distinction between how the first century church saw themselves and what the waters, the cultural waters that we're swimming in, this individualism. So I'm wondering, what would you say pastorally to a person that is struggling to see this connection between the Christian life and connection and community, because I think that is a difficult thing for people to see, especially if they have been burned and they haven't seen these five adjectives on display. Yeah. Wow. That's a great, great thought. Great question. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, you know, are, are we really any different than the world, you know, is what it comes down to. And, and as believers in Christ, we are. And yet, even though, even in, in culture, whether it's first century or today, you know, these, we would all agree like, oh, great to live in harmony or like-mindedness with each other, uh, you know, be... Uh, sympathetic, love your love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. And like I said earlier, the the humility piece was in a in a shame honor society that Peter was writing to. The humility piece was the X factor. That was the one that's like, well, wait a minute, that's you can't live humbly. But but these other things we embrace. Okay, so we go back to the question of like, well, what what does it mean in the day we're living in where individualism reigns? And in Peter's day. Um, there was this strong, you know, uh, sense of this is what community is about. And what I love about the fact that as followers of Christ, we're a part of like this subculture. We are a subculture to ourselves. We don't, mm-hmm. we don't fit in with the world really necessarily, but we're actually embracing many of the same things that the world says is important for community. So I think, okay, I think for the people in our day, that come into the church, and because there's such a strong sense of like, hey, if my need isn't being met here, I'm going to look somewhere else. Mm. I think we have to really work hard at recognizing the value of these attributes within the context of our body. Like, should we, we should be asking ourselves, like, am I contributing to compassion? Do I love, like, family? My other, do I put myself in other people's shoes? Um, do I think or try to get on the same page with other people? And ultimately, in the humility part, which is not embraced by the first century uh, Greco-Roman world, in our sense, we, we recognize this is being like Jesus. This is putting our agenda 
aside and letting Jesus' agenda go. So, you know, I think it is a battle that we are in in the local church, uh, in the modern church. And I just, I think to people, I don't know if you were asking me like, well, what do, how do we address this with believers that kind of want to move on because their needs aren't being met? And they're kind of like holding that individual thing tightly. I think we ought to be saying to these people, you're missing out really on what the beauty of the body of Christ is about. Because when you reject community and become sort of an isolationist, um, you don't have the resources that you're supposed to have. You don't have the people that you can call, talk to. And you and I both know, we see people come through the doors of the church oftentimes who are so alone Mm -hmm. because they've prized isolation and individualism, they're so alone, they don't have any resources to go to. Yet the New Testament church should have been the place where where when we have the need, the first place we go is to our community. Mm. And that's a beautiful thing that so many people are lacking and missing. And so, boy, it's a, it's a powerful, powerful truth for all of us. You mentioned the concept of humility being something that wasn't embraced. And you also mentioned this uh, idea of an honor shame culture. And so like humility would be the opposite of honor, mm-hmm. um, you know, standing up for, you know, what you believe yeah. in or whatnot. Yeah. Um, which brings us to this next verse here in verse nine, which is very powerful. Mm. Uh, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing mm. because to this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. Mm. And so we've been talking in the previous episodes in this podcast about this honor shame culture dynamic and you know if we think about if honor is like a cultural value then insult would be a direct uh, hit against that value Mm -hmm. and so this is like the ultimate weapon to throw at somebody to insult them in Mm -hmm. public Mm -hmm. and, and bring them down and it was actually shameful to not stand up and not retaliate and and um just take it because it's all about honor. It's right. All Defend about your honor, honor and shame. Yeah. What's interesting is that Peter's words almost take this like one step further. Mm-hmm. And he says, not only should we not retaliate, but we should actually repay evil and insult with blessing. Hmm. And so I have a couple questions here. The first one, what might this look like in a situation for us today? Um, you know, is there an example that comes to mind in, in your mind whether you know, we have like 2,000 years of church history or, you know, I'm going to leave it up to you to, okay. to answer that because you have a lot more experience than I do. So <laughs> is there an example? Is there something that like stands out to you of this sort of dynamic? Yeah. Well, first of all, the dynamic is that we are countercultural. And so something that's in, in every culture is sort of this uh, – uh, you know, the, the way we get at people is we, we shame them or we, we uh, you know, we accuse them or we – either falsely or we, we slander them in some way. Um, and then the, the result of that is, is, is payback, right? And that's, that's in all of our human nature. Our human nature is to, whether you're living in a shame-honor society where you're going to defend your honor, well, you kind of do the same thing when you're looking at your Instagram posts or your things where people are not responding the way you like them to. Mm-hmm. And there's like this instant sense of like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say what I think about this to the person. So those, But... The, the ethic that Jesus teaches us as his followers, which we know, which is really something that we have to like stop all the time and say, wait a minute, this is not the way Jesus calls us to live. We are in a counter-cultural mm-hmm. uh, picture. And so 
In fact, earlier in this uh, in this book, he already talks about this in chapter two, verse twenty three. He says, "When they hurled, speaking of Jesus, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges." righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds we are healed. So we are throwing aside this natural pronation to like defend our honor for the honor of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so this is a powerful thing in our culture. So you ask like, well, how does this work out? You know, it works out, I think, in simple ways. One way is like, first of all, we're not the people like posting those angry words uh, to others, or we're not slandering people. We have to stop that side. We have to stop our own words from being accusatory or slanderous or or mean-spirited to people. We have to put a governor around our mouths and our hearts. But then we also have to check our spirits when we feel kind of pinched by what somebody has said to us. Like, what's our first reaction? And like you said, this is so amazing. Like, you know, Instead, instead of insult for insult, with a blessing, you know, so what does that look like? When people accuse us or say mean things, we should say, oh, I love you so much and you are the greatest, you know, like (laughs) that would be disingenuous. Um, But I think we can, the, the spirit of this is that instead of moving quickly to retaliation, we're looking for a way to bless. And the word eulogeo there, which is, I know you're aware, is, is not necessarily a, a nice thing to say as much as asking God's favor Hmm. on the person. And so when we ask God favor, ultimately we're asking for God's salvation, right? We're asking for salvation to visit somebody's heart. And so like if you've got somebody that's really cantankerous toward you, a neighbor, a worker, you know, you've got that person in the workplace that every time you walk in, they got a derogatory thing to say or they chip away at you for something. And, you know, if we can not not passively, you know, like, okay, I'm going to shut my mouth, but inside I'm seething against this person. <laughs> That's not what God wants us to do. Like, we could even passive, we could smile at people. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about having an attitude that says, God, would you bring goodness and salvation on this person's heart to change their life? And how, are, how is God going to do that? He's going to do that through our temperance, through our patience. So, you know, some live examples of that. I know people that are kind of harangued at work, and so they just make it a goal. First of all, when, they, when they're driving to work or on the BART or wherever, they're praying for those people. They're praying that God would set them in a, in a heart of, of, uh, uh, of some way seeing Jesus in their lives in the response. So it's first preparing our hearts. Then we get into a situation where someone does say the mean thing, and if we could just stop our, our first... Instead of retaliating back, but just remember remember the example of Jesus. It's like, okay, how can I right now uh, demonstrate a Christ-like spirit? And maybe it's saying no words, but maybe it's actually saying something kind to a person, um, or or simply, uh, you know, forgiving them in that moment. Like, hey, I you probably didn't mean what you just said there. Um, maybe they interject. Yes, I did. You know, um, all right, well, you know what? Uh, I'm going to take a pass on that because I don't know if that's really true and I don't know if you really believe that. You know, like always, like I know police officers that are so good at de-escalating a situation. I think Christians have to become better at de-escalating the verbal attacks Mm. that come, whether it's on our social media platforms or in person. Um, We're just so good at like just, you know, cutting people down in shreds. So... Um, maybe we're kind of getting lost in the weeds here a little bit, but I think 
you know, I think this, it's in all of us. We've got to resist it, but we can't just passively resist. We actually have to ask the Lord to give us a spirit of blessing. And I think for the non-Christian who's really a tormentor to us, maybe, (laughs) by the way, there could be Christians who are tormentors (laughs) as well. Some people have the spiritual gift of complaint and and anger, you know, and and they're not afraid to share it with anybody. Um, And so we have to be really, really mindful. And, And believe me, I've I'm not there. I have to always check myself because I can easily just kind of jump in. But I've had enough models in my own life to say like, hey, the better thing is to let let the words fall. Let the person that said it hear what they've said and then just somehow diffuse it mm. in some way. And I think that's what the, the spirit of this passage is, modeled by the life of Jesus right here in First Peter. One of the things we've been doing in this podcast is coming to the scriptures in sort of a skeptical lens. Mm. And, you know, this is such a tough ethic to live by in our world. Mm. Uh, but like you said, it's a it's a Jesus ethic. You can look at Luke 6, you can look at Matthew mm. 5, like loving those who, who bless or your enemies and those who persecute you. Yeah. And I want to ask this from a skeptical lens here. Um, what do you say to the person who has adopted this very posture? Mm-hmm. You know, um, de-escalating that yeah. de-escalation posture. Yep. And, you know, we've been saying like, maybe that will like bring transformation in their lives, mm. but they're just not seeing it. Mm. And they're doing this over and over and mm. over battered mm. down. Mm. Um, they're not seeing the Lord in mm. any of this. Like it mm. just feels like they're a walking doormat. Mm. What do you have to say to those people mm. that are just like, man, it feels like all this evil is coming around me. Mm. I feel like I want to step up or do something, but it says like, yeah, repay evil with blessing. Yeah. And it, I can see how that would be exhausting over time. So what do you say to those people that are struggling with that? Well, I'd say maybe get a new group of friends, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, the, 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 it's probably true that some of us are particularly battered by, you know, adversarial voices. But that's the beauty of being in the body of Christ. I mean, like, like I'm so grateful that if I'm getting beat up by somebody, whether it's outside the family of God, or sometimes inside the family of God, I'm grateful that I have enough voices and people in my life that offset that reality. And community is a big part of that. Like when we're around community, we get built up. We're, we're focusing on building each other up, loving on each other. It's, you know, it's so beautiful, and you know this, AJ, when you walk into church, I love hearing the laughter of God's people. I love seeing people give hugs and reaching out and, and just showing that love to each other. And sometimes it's a little surfacey, but when you get into the small groups, man, that's a beautiful thing. Like when there's like just beautiful physical love and, and connection and words of affirmation and all of that. So that is a huge offset. Mm. But let's say you're just in a season where the minor offset is getting to you. And that's what you're asking me. It's like, well, what do you do? Um, I, first, I would, I would say to that, hey, you're in good company because Jesus himself had that, that moment where he was beaten up, so to speak, um, literally uh, at his trial. But I think, you know, that verse that we just read a second ago, that he, he instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Mm. Um, the question is, like, do we really trust that God in the end is going to vindicate and, and really do a redemptive work in this. And, uh, you know, th- this could be like with a spouse you're living with. It could be like with one of your kids, or it could be your parent who you feel is just always hammering away at your life. 
It could be a neighbor. It could be a, a, an extended family member. It could be someone that really has it out for you. I think in all of those situations, you have to really look deep inside and say, what do I really believe about you know, God's um, ultimate redemption? And I think this is where the Spirit of God who lives within us brings these quiet words of affirmation that that you're going to be okay. And one of the things we said on Sunday, which we tried to, I tried to kind of hammer out, is this, the reason we can bless is that we know that we are destined for a blessing. You know, like in the text it says, for this you are called. Well, mm-hmm. we were called to give a blessing, but he says also in verses 10 and following, which I don't want to steal your thunder here, but <laughs> he's talking about how this is the life that God has for us. This is the good life. And, and I think, wow, we have to appraise the good life that God has for us. That And this is what I tried to say on Sunday, that he has our back and he hears our prayers. I mean, these are the things that we have to really ask ourselves, do we believe about the God we serve? And when we really believe it, I think there's a fellowship in the sufferings that we take. I think there's more beauty than anguish in it, because I think this is where he loves to meet us when we feel, when we've... You know, this is, what I think, what Paul's getting at in Philippians 3 when he says that I might know the fellowship of his sufferings, be acquainted with his death. I think this is where Jesus is closest to his followers when we are truly being beat up. Now, we might be beat up because we're being ridiculous or that we're showing, you know, wrong words or things to people. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when we're really taking it on the chin um, for something that we've not done to deserve that. And we're, we're just in sweet fellowship with Jesus in that moment. So I would say to the person like, Hey, get, get better friends, get around community and, and then really take stock in what do you really believe about this God? And, and he'll, if he hasn't met us there, then I think we got a, another problem, you know, cause he promises that he's near the broken heart at Psalm 34, which is where this text comes out of it. you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. he's near the broken hearted saves those who are crushed in spirit. So, wow. Yeah. Okay. We've been bleeding into this next section here. Uh, let me read it for our listeners here and starting in verse 10 for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so Larry, as you've mentioned, Peter has drawn from examples in Jesus' Jesus's life itself. He now uh, grounds this really difficult ethic that we've been talking about on a psalm. And that's Psalm 34, as you've been mentioning. This is the thunder that you said I had. But um, I think this is an important psalm um, that Peter has been alluding to throughout his letter. And so I was wondering if you could take us in this last moments of this episode uh, a little bit through Psalm 34, because it seems like there's some important concepts in there. Mm. And I just wanted to give you some space to unpack the psalm for us so that we can kind of get some... uh, some roots in what first or first Peter's trying to do for us. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. I made the point on Sunday that, you know, one of the things about the good life is seeing life in the lens through the lens of scripture. And that's what Peter's doing here. Actually, he's drawing from, and he's already done that in the letter. You know, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That happens earlier. If you've tasted chapter two, verse one, you know, long for the pure milk of the word. Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. That's also Psalm 34. Mm-hmm. Psalm 34, uh, scholars believe, and in the subscription of the psalm, you know, uh, written by David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech. <laughs> you know, so if you know the story of David, and I think it's First Samuel 
20 something where David is on the run and, and Saul is chasing David. And so David decides, okay, the best place to hide is among the enemies of Saul. So he goes into the Philistine, you know, the world of the Philistines. And there he meets first, it's kind of confusing because if you look at it, he meets a priest at, at, a, at a town named Nob, Ahimelech. Mm-hmm. And Ahimelech, you know, you know, he, David is saying, I need some food, you know. And so there's a whole story there. And then David leaves from there and he goes down to Gath. And Gath is this, this where Achish, king of Gath. And so who is... Abimelech. Right. Well, Abimelech, the name means, I, I think it means uh, my father is king. And so whether that's Achish or it was a different reference, we really don't know. But the point is, and I love, by the way, I love the response if you read it there. I think it's in, I think it's in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel where David goes there and Abimelech is told, you know, you've got, you got this insane guy in front of you. And he goes, <laughs> I love Abimelech. He goes, do I need one more insane person? You know, like... <laughs> Anyway, I'm digressing here, but David is David is doing what actually we're doing. We David was sojourning in the land of the enemy, basically, and he did not fit in there, and yet he had to like have a persona, and somehow in this Psalm 34, where David is writing on this sojourn, here's how he sees he sees Jehovah God as his redeemer and as one who is journeying with him and is his, you know, the one that I taste, the one who hears me when I call, who delivers me from my fears. This is kind of the the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. He delivers them. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is David saying, like, in the midst of my own exile, and think about this, he's on the run for his life. In the midst of his own exile, he's drawing near to the God who redeems, the God who hears, the God who has his back, the God who's near him when he's the brokenhearted, and the God who's promising that this is what I do with my righteous sons and daughters. I take care of them. So to have Peter insert that right here to me is a beautiful reminder to us who are in exile. We're living as sojourners. We're in the land of the Philistines. Um, that God hears our prayers and has our back. And so he, we, we can go through stuff, but he's in the stuff with us. And this was David's conviction. And so I love this. This is, this is truly the good life. This is the good life that all of us are looking for. Now, we can choose to go in another direction for the good life, which I'm, I elaborate a little bit on Sunday. I don't know how much time We're good, yeah. <laughs> I had or have, but anyway, this is the good life. This is the good life. God has my back. He hears my prayers. He's with me in all things. Awesome. Yeah, and I think First Peter has been challenging us to live that good life in the midst of a culture that is growing increasingly against Christianity, but there's some good things about the culture, but then there's some things where we're called to live in this Jesus ethic, however hard that looks. Mm. And so, Pastor Larry, thank you so much for um, unpacking that for us and for speaking on Sunday. Uh, next week, we'll be going over uh, some Noah stuff and speaking to some imprisoned spirits, which wow. I know can get really fun. That's going to be great. <laughs> so if you want to stick around, listen to that episode. Uh, we're going to be with Pastor Danny. But um, Pastor Larry, thank you so oh. much for unpacking this text for us. My blessing. Thank you. My honor. My honor.